0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're in Chapter 6 in a series called Vulnerability. And the word vulnerability doesn't actually show up necessarily in the book, and yet I think it ties all sorts of things together. Today again, Paul talks very openly about how he wants the Corinthians to open up. And what we've seen is vulnerability is really openness, it's not weakness, it's not, um, you know, it's not exposing everything that you've ever done in your life to someone. It is really openness to learn, to grow, and to connect. And it is so essential that we do that, and I think more so today than ever before. And yes, that does sometimes mean sharing the weaknesses and the foils and the foibles and all that stuff, but it's the openness that really matters. And today we're going to get a warning from Paul in chapter 6, which is rather fascinating, a warning um, about how he's worried about the Corinthians that they might be receiving the grace of God as he puts it in vain. So let's read this from 2 Corinthians chapter six. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So that's kind of the key I saw in this text. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonment, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. So that first phrase, he warns against receiving God's grace in vain. Now the word for vanity here, or vain, is the Greek word kenos, which means basically empty, void, of no profit, amounting to zero. There's nothing to it. It means nullifying somehow the grace of God. It means emptying of its intentions, its purpose in our lives, its content. It means grace becomes just a thing rather than what it actually is. So today we're going to look at these points because I think his warning to the Corinthians, if they could have this happen, maybe we better watch out too it might be able to happen in our lives, right? So we're gonna look at these points, receiving the grace of God in vain, what are grace's characteristics from this text, and then living grace-filled lives. Now, the Corinthians were filled with a lot of knowledge, right? Uh, You might know this, they were know-it-all Christians. Do we have any of those these days? Yeah, I probably am one. Yeah. It's, it's just like, well, yeah, I can give you an answer to almost anything. <laughs> I can fake it if I don't know it. Um, but um, And so often, like I said, when you're reading a Bible passage and you could stumble across a name that you have no idea how to pronounce, just say it with confidence and nobody else will know. <laughs> you can get it, right? But um, OK. So they had a lot of knowledge, in fact, Um, That was one of their dangers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I believe what happens when we receive the gospel as an information, as just knowledge, as a formula, that's when we are receiving God's grace in vain. And that happens. God know that happens too easily. It becomes just kind of this plus sign, the cross. And I just add it into my life. You know, I remember as um, a teenager, we uh, went through the Kennedy evangelism explosion method. And you basically have this wonderful little outline of things. And you tell people, point one, do this. Point two, do that. Point three, do this. Boom, you're there. Somehow we reduced the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ to a little formula, a couple of rules, a couple of things to follow. You add it in. You're there. You've made it. The gospel is good news, but it's not simply information. It's really a life-changing, status-changing, future-changing, present-impacting good news. It's not something you just memorize. It's not something you just kind of add up in your mind. It's not like memorizing the formula for compound interest and then applying it, although I've never figured out compound interest. Why is it that we keep, why does my house cost so much? You know, why are these payments so big? Somebody, do you understand that? But if you even understand that formula, it's as if, and it's nothing, you just do it and then you move on. That's always a danger in Christianity. It's where we, end up treating the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as a commodity that you buy, that you buy into. And church is just an item to consume. But Christianity is not about success in business or victory in politics or winning in sports or achieving in academics. And Paul warns us about that with knowledge that's devoid of love means nothing, it's empty. Information really devoid of faith and devoid of trust or words that are devoid of God's spirit. Christianity has turned in for some and hopefully not for us, but I know it's always a temptation to turn into just an ideology, a thing to believe up in the head, to know and to feel fine about and then to go on with life whatever way we want. Where we kind of stay in the center, where we stay in control. The gospel's not in control. We kind of inspect the Word of God when the Word of God actually inspects us. You see, the reality is the gospel of Jesus Christ is one of the most decentering. I know that's an odd word, but decentering events anyone could have in anyone's life. We realize that when the gospel is proclaimed to us, it's not about me. It's not about what I can do or what I have to do or the formula I have to follow. It's not about a method or a process. Actually, if it were about me, it would be bad news because I can't do it. The gospel is about what Jesus has done, the promises God has made, what Christ has accomplished, and that takes me out of the center of my own life. For Paul, he put it this way in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ." who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is de-centering. All of a sudden, I'm not the center anymore. One of the great uh, sagas of the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph. And if you read the story of Joseph, you find out how central, uh, how egotistical he was at the beginning. He has this dream. He tells his brothers. How foolish to tell your brothers a dream like this. You're all going to bow down to me. I'm the center of the universe, is basically what he was saying. By the time he goes through all the hardships he does and being enslaved and thrown in prison, and he comes before Pharaoh again, you see that all of a sudden he's not talking about, look at how great I am at interpreting dreams. He says, I have no, this is all from God. All of a sudden he is decentered, and God is a center. That's the gospel's power in anybody's life, that the gospel takes us out of the center and puts God back where he belongs. Now, the I think more pronounced in this text is this way we can receive the grace of God in vain, and that is when you don't make room for others in your life. Paul says at the end, of this passage, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Now, the word here, translated in the ESV that we use, restricted, is the Greek word steno koreo, steno koreo. And in it, it means to press upon, to restrict, to restrain. The word steno is for the word to narrow. Stenosis, don't we talk about spinal stenosis? That's a narrowing of the spinal cord column, right? That's, you didn't know, you knew Greek already and you didn't know it, right? And then koreo means room or space, okay? So being stuck in a narrow space, or in other words, (laughs) having no room, making no room taking no time for someone. And Paul found out that he and his apostleship and his other disciples who came along with him were given no room and no time by the Corinthians. And he lists what he went through for them. I mean, it's one of those lists, right? He went through all sorts of things for these Corinthians so that they would make room for him and they were basically shutting him out. He talks about how by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. In a sense, this is his curriculum vitae. This is his resume. (laughs) How would you like that one? (laughs) Go into a job. This is is who I am. This is what I've gone through. Here's my experience. Woo. I don't want this one. Yeah, Paul shares everything all the joys and struggles with the Corinthians and he wants them to open up to him, not so that they're just open to him, but open to the God who has led him to them. Open to him would mean that they would be open to those who are weak, those who are suffering, those who've been marginalized, open to making room for people in their lives, but they don't have any for him. They have it later on. And we'll see towards the end of this letter, They have it for these super apostles, these blowhards, who talk about victory and success. And why are they open and make room for them? They even pay to hear them, buy tickets to their shows. Why? Because they're talking about self-aggrandizing. They're talking about centering life on accumulation, on self. But they're not open, Paul says, to the weak, to the needy, to the suffering. That they've shut out. We see that also in 1 Corinthians, where even when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says, you aren't really celebrating the Lord's Supper. The wealthy get there first, they drink and they eat, the poor come later, there's nothing for them. You've made no room. You haven't discerned the body of Christ right in your midst of people of all different social strata. Why is it Our human nature is to kind of insulate us from especially weaknesses and neediness in others. Have you ever noticed that? I believe it's because as I've read in a number of books, Arthur McGill's and others, theologians, we tend to believe that the good life is a life of accumulation of adding all sorts of stuff in, of material possessions, of experiences, of things that build us up. And when somebody who is needy among us comes to us, either time or money or possessions or room or space, they're asking us to give things away to them. We feel like that leaves us with less, less life. The more stuff I have, the more life I have. Really, is that what Jesus says? So Lee Health, I think I've shared this a little before, Lee Health is um, you know, our hospital system here. But they do a lot more. They, they really survey, 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 holistically survey the entire five counties of Southwest Florida to see what the needs really are, to see people's lifestyles, situations, everything. And uh, the city manager here of Estero shared with a bunch of pastors what they discovered. One of the things that they discovered in southwest Florida, there were different swaths, different pockets, especially where loneliness, depression, and anxiety were like off the chart. And you know where those swaths were? Not maybe where you expected. The Gold Coast of Naples and the islands, and any of the wealthiest sections of our area. They have all sorts of stuff. They have everything we say is the good life, and yet they have nothing. They're the opposite of what Paul says. You know, we make many rich. We seem to have nothing, and yet we possess everything. They possess everything, and yet they possess nothing. Isn't that interesting? I think it's what Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? You think you're accumulating stuff and saving your life? You're actually losing it when you're doing that. You don't understand what life is really all about. Christine Pohl, I read this book for my doctorate way back when. It's called Making Room. Uh, about Christian hospitality. She did basically a dissertation on looking at how Christians have been hospitable through the ages. And in it, she writes this. One great reason why the rich in general have so little sympathy for the poor is because they so seldom visit them. Hence it is that according to the common observation, one part of the world does not know what the other suffers. Many of them do not know because they do not care to know. They keep out of the way of knowing it, and then plead their voluntary ignorance as an excuse for their hardness of heart. You might think that's a bit harsh. But it's interesting how we can see the needs a thousand, two thousand continents away from us and go like, oh, that's terrible, but we don't even know the needs of our neighbors who live in the same community. I still recall back when uh, Hurricane Irma came through. Oof. Lord, save us, please, this year, none, right? What was amazing about it is we as a church, I thank you so much, we were for six months after Hurricane Irma. We're still cleaning yards and mocking out houses, doing all sorts of stuff. We got into the community and saw the poorer people in our community dealt with more of the flooding and everything. And I recall hearing people coming down after Hurricane Irma. And I don't want to really pit one group against another here. But it was interesting to say they came down, and I heard them. Wow, it looks like nothing happened. And it's like, you must not be, and this is the case, you're not connected to the people who've, who've gone through this. It's so easy to be disconnected. And Paul would say that's what was happening in the Corinthian church, that the Corinthians had disconnected themselves from the needs of others so much that they were now receiving the grace of God in vain. It just turned into information. It turned into another formula for them to build themselves up, to think highly of themselves, to be filled with knowledge, and shallow on relationships. As I've said um, a lot of times, probably, people aren't looking for a friendly church. You know, of course, friendliness is nice. When people come into a church, they're looking for friends. In order to be friendly, it takes that much, you know, it's just we've got that hour right now this morning, or longer. I know it's a little longer usually. but being friends, it takes time. And you have to make room for them. It's a lot different. It's a lot different. So maybe sometimes Thrive is not the most popular destination as a church, partly because we kind of hope that you will make room and take time. You can go to a big box, waterfall, celebration, woohoo, got my information for the week, pep talk, maybe you- biblical sermon all the way through. But if that's all it takes is that hour a week or hour and a half a week, and you walk away and lead your life as if nothing has changed, that's, are you making room and taking time as Paul would call the church here? Do you understand what I'm saying? (coughs) Maybe I'm stepping a little too heavy into it. I don't know. So the Corinthians were know-it-alls, pursued their own agendas, used their knowledge and their spiritual gifts and everything for themselves, and did not make room and take time for the rest. Now, that, uh, that's great. Our society, though, do you not feel like, you've probably met a number of people that you can tell you're trying to talk to them, but they have no time for you, right? Have you felt like that? Yeah. It's not so good, right? Or when you're with a sales rep for something, you know what the agenda is. Well, part of the problem has been um, sales reps and others now are being egraded and evaluated by algorithms. Productivity. Somehow there's this productivity algorithm that's That's detailing every move. So recently this week, I was reading um, an article by Jody Cantor in the New York Times. It's entitled, The Rise of Worker Productivity Scores. And in it, she knows everybody's getting evaluated these days and determined whether they are good enough to keep in the job. She writes, since the dawn of modern offices, workers have orchestrated their actions by watching the clock. Now more and more the clock is watching them. This is a slide. I know I'm out of order and all. You found it. Good. In lower paying jobs, the monitoring is already ubiquitous. You have probably heard from Amazon workers and others how they're rated, right? Now digital productivity monitoring is also spreading among white collar jobs and roles that require graduate degrees. Many employees, whether working remotely or in person, are subject to trackers, scores, idle buttons, and just quiet, constantly accumulating records pauses can lead to penalties from lost pay to lost jobs. Now what was even shocking in this, you could read this, she talks about hospice. That there are certain nonprofit hospice organizations that are now into productivity trackers for their chaplains. And they get like one point for visiting someone in hospice, a half a point for talking to a family, a phone call is worth this, a visit is worth that. And so these hospice chaplains feel like they have to keep up And in fact, they are saying now it's getting in the way of actually doing meaningful ministry. Because tell me, how can you find an algorithm for love and listening and care and respect? How can you decide, well, you took too much time at that bedside while that person was dying because they were opening up to you and you should have gotten to six more people Do you understand how this is working now? So a number of these chaplains in this system decided to quit because they knew it was getting in the way of actually doing ministry. But the hospice organization thinks it's effective. Now the question is, how do churches fall into this as well? What is it that we measure? Should we just kind of give it up? That's what we need to change. We need to get out of quantifying everything instead of, let's just talk about relationships. Let's just talk about relationships and to make room for people who may seem like, quote, a waste of time. Have you ever felt that way? Or who may feel like, oh, that's just going to be so draining. And Jesus would say, Fantastic. You'll learn a lot. That's where life is. That's what life is about. So Douglas John Hall, I think, uh, put it this way. I firmly believe that until the churches of North America are led more deeply into the darkness of our epoch, They will continue to exist largely on the surface of life and history. That is, we need to be be there when people are facing loneliness, when we are seeing their cry for relationships, when they have pursued material gain and realized how foolish it is, when we are dealing with people who are facing all sorts of things. And I know many of you are already doing that. Don't ever feel it's a waste of time or energy. And I know for us, it's sometimes draining like even like our our barbecue and everything that we put into it and yet because you could easily say well what are we gonna benefit from these college students will be here for a couple of years and then they move somewhere else it's not about what we benefit you know it's not really about that it's about Jesus and his kingdom it's about what is needed at the time so Grace is not a commodity, and productivity points aren't going to define it. So what are the characteristics of grace that Paul talks about here? We could go into a lot of them. And you'll get that from other passages, but I'm going to look at two situations here that he talks about in this text in 2 Corinthians 6. So here in verse 2, he says, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. A characteristic of grace is that it is here, right now, present. Grace is not an idea in the past, it's not just a historical application of something that happened back then to today, it is the fact that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, he is actually present. He is the gift that is given. It's not a bunch of information I'm sharing with you. What's happening this morning is when Jesus Christ is proclaimed, he is actually here, saying now's the time to receive me. I am right here for you right now, right where you are, no matter the situation. It is always present. God is not, by the way, the God of second chances or third chances or fourth chances. Grace is not a chance. It is a promise. And it's not a promise, you better take this time, and and if you don't, you're totally messed up. But it's a gift that's always being given whenever Jesus, whenever two or three are gathered in his name, he is present. Whenever his word is proclaimed, it does not come back void. He is giving himself away to you. The cross is present right now. Grace is received right now as a gift. That's the first characteristic Paul talks about. So he's not saying, too late, Corinthians. You've had decades to get this straight, and you're messed up. This is my last letter to you. I'm tired of it. No. But he is calling them to say, today's the day. Not yesterday and not tomorrow. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't look back when you, when you received it in a decade ago receive it now. And then he also writes, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Grace, there's no hoops to jump through, no preconditions, no exclusions, no payment plan to grace. You You get a little now, you'll get a little later, as long as. And there is no but first, So here's the gift, but now first you better do. There is none of that. That's what's so shocking and amazing. It is such a free gift. It is so simple and yet so profound that so many people go like, now wait a minute, that's just too easy. I've got to do something. But we've got to do something, right? No, you don't. You receive it as the gift it is. And that kills off our whole sense. That's what's so de-centering about it. Because it's like, wow, it's just mine? It's free? I don't do anything? I it's not about you. Thank God it's not about what you have to do. It's what has been accomplished for you through Jesus Christ. Like Paul's description of his life and how he lived a ministry of grace through all sorts of en- enduring hardships and persecutions and jails and imprisonment. He's only following his Savior, Jesus, in a little tangible way compared to the ultimate apostle, the ultimate one who was sent by the Father, Jesus Christ, who absolutely was sincere in everything he said, truthful and loving and genuine. He was patient, kind and good with everyone. He made room for us when he had no room himself no place to lay his head. He took time for children. And we might think that's cute, but in that day and age, it meant to most, they were insignificant, they didn't matter. Wait till they grow up, someday they'll be the future. But now they're nothing, and he said no. That's exactly what the kingdom of God is about. He welcomed lepers and tax collectors and cheats who everybody else said was unworthy of time or sitting down to eat with them, and yet he weeps weeps over the world that's going to reject him. And he had nothing and yet gave everything. So if you look at the descriptions that Paul talks about his ministry, they're just a, a... reflection, a not even a perfect reflection, a smudged reflection of all that Jesus has done for you and willingly, that's grace. Grace is the fact that Jesus, God's son, who didn't need to, chose to be vulnerable for you. Vulnerable to insults and pains and injury and even death and that changes everything. And through his resurrection, he opens up eternal life for you. Eternity, community with God and others. So nothing is in the way. The gospel's here present this morning. You know, I love the song Waymaker that we sang. Uh, just the second song, kind of like an a tag at the end, that you are here in our midst. Not you are there, Or you were here, but you are here in our midst. And what you are doing is not something that happened 2,000 years ago, but is happening now. So how do you live grace-filled lives as a result? Um, I don't know if you realize this. You probably do. Most people right now are tired. didn't. I haven't seen too many yawns this morning. But what I mean is just weary. The last few years have been really tough. The world is moving so fast now, it's really a dehumanizing pace. Silicon Valley is running our clock, by the way. Productivity, right? Tick, 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 got to get everything done. Everything has to be bigger, faster, better, more. And a lot of people are feeling left out and shut out and wondering, I, I'm only as good as my last you know, productivity point, my last promotion, my last thing, my last publication, my last whatever. Do you realize how dehumanizing all that is? How do you live grace-filled lives? I like what Christine Pohl says in her book. She says, people view hospitality as quaint and tame, partly because they do not understand the power of recognition. Hospitality can begin a journey toward visibility and respect. It's about making room, taking time. We do that for our kids almost naturally. You know, They can interrupt us almost any point in time. And they do, <laughs> right? And uh, middle of the night, they wake up. You're there. You make room. You take time. We know that. That's what quality life is, making room and taking time. Not How many things did I do today? How many people were, was I with and touched and able to be ministered to by today? It's all about relationships. This last week, I was visiting um, at a luncheon on Friday, so not too long ago, um, with another uh, staff member at FGCU. And she was sharing about her uh, son who's um, had struggled with long COVID now and is struggling with um, lots of things and trying to get kind of his life together. And um, he has gone to see a counselor but he came back from it kind of not connecting with the counselor. Nothing against counselors. I am so thankful for for we need more these days. We see a need for more. But his point was, you know, he said to his mom, I wish I could just find someone I didn't have to pay to listen to me. Did you get it? That's us. That's how you make room and take time. We don't charge. There's no obstacle in the way. But first you better, before I will, know. I think Jesus did it as well with his disciples who I think got caught up into productivity and building the kingdom and doing all these things and who's the greatest and all that. And he did it by taking a little child actually an infant, probably Liam's age. Okay, Liam's uh, going to be a year, but about that age, and puts him in the and and brings that child into the midst and says, "This is the kingdom. You got to be like a child to enter it. This is what the kingdom's about. This is what Andrew Root in his book says. Jesus is saying, unless dis- you disciples recognize that you are the kind of creatures who need." and therefore are bound to others, humbly giving and receiving love, friendship, and care, then you could never enter the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom is the relationship of persons in giving and receiving ministry. You know, that's the thing about children. It's not that they're childish and they whine and complain. That's one thing they do. But it's the fact that they know they're needy that their life is contingent on mom and dad and grandpa and grandma and others around them, that they're not going to be on their own? Why is it that we adults have done everything in our power, every technology that we've created seems to try to keep us to be independent and alone and isolated? And in fact, that's what's exactly happened. He says, in order to be in the kingdom, it's all about relationships, and it's the fact that I need you and you need me. I cannot live alone. It's about making room and taking time. Isn't that the way we want to be here at Thrive? Isn't that what, you know, hangouts are and huddles are and picnics are and barbecues are and conversations are and spending time with people is all about. Isn't that it? It's just making room, taking time. And God does the most amazing things. That's the quality life. Open up your heart. Wide open. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you this day. Um, you know, we're trying. <laughs> we're facing the productivity points clock we so easily get tempted into falling into thinking life is about getting more stuff, doing more in less time, being efficient. And you said life is all about being like children, being in relationship with others, especially with you. And you made room, in fact, Lord, that's what you're doing. That's what the kingdom is. That you are making room in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit to include us in the midst of that forever, Lord. That you would want us to be with you forever is amazing. And you will spend all time on us. Amazing, Lord God. Help us here to be about the quality of our relationships that we're not just friendly, but we are about friendships, that we are about serving and giving, about seeing, that, Lord, for all of us, that we do not receive the grace of God in vain, but we receive it with open hearts for ourselves and for others, that you have loved us first so that we can love others that you have given so that we can give to others that we receive, that we can freely give, Lord God. There are many situations right now, Lord, that people just need time and some space and some community, Lord. And your healing presence and your spirit upon them. So we lift up to you Arlene right now, who is um, my mom. You know, she's um, failing, Her, her memory is going. She's ready to be with you, Lord. And in the visits that my sister makes and others make, Lord, be visiting as well. Make room and take time for her and bring her to the room you've prepared for her, Lord. We lift up Otto and pray that you would uh, bring your healing through the surgery to repair his broken arm, Lord, that it would also give him the ability to fellowship with you to be with you, that you would also give him the opportunities as he so wants to be with others and to be in community and not be isolated because of this situation right now. Lord, we've come out of a very difficult time of isolation. And maybe in some sense, we've realized palpably the need for community. And yet Lord, our lives are not set up for it. Forgive us for that. Forgive us and renew us. Lord, for Wyatt's father and his mother, as they travel back from Montana, keep them safe, bring healing to his father's heart as um, he has gone through a very difficult time and draw him to you, Lord Jesus. May his visits with cardiologists and others here in Florida give him wisdom and grant him understanding of how he can truly be connected to family and friends and to serve you in so many ways for many, many days. Um, Lord, we lift up our campus ministry. We lift up um, all that we're attempting at FGCU in this community, Lord. We lift up our picnic. We pray that it'd be an opening, a space, a place, a time for relationships to flourish and that you would uh, bless our efforts in reaching out to more members in this community who are facing loneliness and isolation, Lord God, and that we could help make a difference for your kingdom in those ways. Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper in just a few moments, when we receive uh, you, Lord, we're asking that you make room in our lives for you, that you are at home in us fully, and that you'd help us to make room for each other, that we would be open to receive. Forgive us when we have closed off ourselves, um, when we have curved in on ourselves and centered our lives on ourselves. Lord, that is what sin is, Lord. And uh, if we say we haven't done these things, if we say we have no sin, we just deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us, but. We confess our sins to you, Lord, and you are faithful and loving and forgive us our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that. And bless our time as we open up our pocketbooks to you, Lord, our finances to you. We lay them before you to use them not for the sake of building buildings necessarily, although we hope, Lord, that is part of the future, but that any facilities, any rooms, any space would be to your glory to build the relationships you would want. That anything that we do, Lord, would give us opportunities and time and the gifts that we give in money, Lord, would give us time and room to build your kingdom, the way that you have chosen to build, Lord God. All these things we uh, lift up to you this day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.